Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific Century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. My co-host, Rich Verma, is traveling today and is not with us, but I'm extremely lucky to be joined by a great friend and colleague former Ambassador Joseph Yoon. Joe was a career foreign service officer who served in postings around the world from Seoul to Bangkok to Paris. But Joe's global exposure comes from more than just serving as a U.S. diplomat. Joe was born in Seoul and then moved to Nigeria when he was 10 years old, accompanying his father, who was a doctor for the World Health Organization. He began studying in the United Kingdom in middle school, attended the University of Wales, and received two master's degrees from the London School of Economics. After working in the private sector for a number of years, Joe joined the Foreign Service in 1985, where he served in numerous posts during succeeding decades. In 2013, he became the U.S. Ambassador to Malaysia at a pivotal time in the relationship. He then went on to serve as the U.S. Special Representative for North Korea Policy, where he led U.S. efforts to engage with Pyongyang. But I would be remiss to not mention Joe's most extraordinary career accomplishment, joining us at the Asia Group. After retiring, Joe joined our team as a special advisor, bringing his expertise and knowledge to help our clients further their interests in Korea and the rest of East Asia, as well as Southeast Asia. Joe, we're thrilled you're part of our team, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tea Leaves. Well, thank you very much, Kurt. It is great to be here. It's almost like uh, coming home, you know. Uh, uh, you were my boss, what, for three, four years. It seems I cannot get away, but here we are. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Thanks, Joe. So for many of our listeners, uh, you will have seen Joe on TV. I have rarely seen uh, expert commentary more effectively utilized by CNN during the recent diplomacy uh, between uh, the United States and North Korea. I'd like to start there, Joe. We want to talk a little bit about your early upbringing, but since we're seeing you on TV, what's it like to make a transition from being a diplomat to a TV personality? It was initially, as you might guess, quite a rough transition, Kurt. And, uh, and because, as you know, as soon as I left state, there was huge events happening around North Korea and, of course, culminating in uh, President Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un. So I was on air quite a bit, so it was really learning by doing and also learning to speak honestly and frankly and giving my views as opposed to the views of the administration. And so that was initially hard to do, but I think I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, Joe, having worked with you before, it's never been difficult for you to take a strong uh, personal view as opposed to just the official dogma. Um, let me just ask you just generally about uh, your role as a commentator right now. Uh, as you look at the North Korea diplomacy that's ongoing between the United States and North Korea, do you ever find yourself uh, stepping out of your role of commentator and wanting to just say, stop, you're doing it the wrong way or you got to do it a different way. How, how do you manage that? That, that moment starts, you know, it happens. Uh, and I would say when I was in Singapore, I was with CNN, of course. 
and they brought me the document, the joint agreement or joint statement. I said, this couldn't be it. There was nothing there. I said, how could this be it? We must be mistaken, you know. And, <laughs> and so my immediate reaction was to check with one of my former colleagues, of course. And he said, this is it. And then so I had to go on air. And I think it was really first time assessment. And I felt terrible about saying that this was empty. And, but I believe I, you know, I, you know, and my, actually Anderson Cooper was the one who was on air with me. And I think he was a little bit shocked too, that I would come out and be so black and white. And, but then, you know, within a few minutes, everyone followed suit. And I think, uh, uh, really that, that helped set the tone while I did not want to be so critical on this instant, I really did feel that process had been backward. In other words, with a summit meeting before anything had been agreed to. And, you know, Kurt, you know, well, if you do it backward, you're not going to get a good result. And it's unfortunate, but I think we missed an amazing opportunity. Uh, Joe, uh, you know, to be honest, as a listener and a watcher, uh, I would say you come across with tremendous humanity. It's clear that you are rooting for diplomacy, which I think folks appreciate more generally. I wonder, we, we do know that the Trump team is a sensitive lot. Um, do you get any feedback from uh, what you see on air? I have not get, gotten much feedback. Obviously, I've talked to my former colleagues and others, and they seem generally okay with it. I would say, I always preface it to say, as you just said, we are better off now than we were a year ago. And we do not want to go back to fire and fury, bloody nose. And so I always say that, but I say that we're losing an opportunity. Uh, and so to me, it's a very important point to make that we want engagement, we want diplomatic engagement, that I firmly believe there is no war option. Yeah. So, Joe, I want to go back. We've already talked a little bit about your uh, unique upbringing growing up uh, abroad in Africa and your uh, education uh, in the UK and elsewhere. So after being in business, you decided to join the State Department. What's it like to have a career as a, a foreign service officer? Well, you know, when you start, you, of course, start at the most junior level, which is stamping visas. And uh, I stamped visas in Hong Kong uh, at a time of transition. And so that was kind of interesting time to find out why so many people wanted to leave Hong Kong at that time. So I would say at every stage, I feel I've had a good career, good assignments. You know, being an FSO, two things are most important. One is, are you getting the type of assignments you want? Second thing is, are you getting promoted regularly? So if those two things work out for you, you're going to have a nice career. And for me, you know, I've had variety of work and, you know, I've had variety of responsibilities and really highlights for me are, of course, being in Malaysia. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you know, working as PDAS, uh, uh, EAP during Hillary Clinton, and of course your era. Those were by far the highlight. 
But I would say doing the North Korea work meant a lot to me, being a Korean-American, and being in touch and in communication with North Korea, uh, which is so isolated, and seeing whether I could convert skills as diplomat to something that was quite meaningful globally, and to me to test my own skills as a diplomat with North Koreans was very, very rewarding. So, Joe, I, uh, I was one of those people who served in a lot of places in government, hadn't served in the State Department, did not much like the State Department, and then was assigned there relatively late in my career. I'm in a situation now where there's nowhere else I would work. I would uh, turn down any position except at the State Department. I have so much uh, fondness and loyalty to the institution uh, generally. I will say, as an organization, more than people realize, it's hierarchical and it's bureaucratic. Very hierarchical, perhaps even more so than military organizations I've worked in in the past. So tell us something about you that I've always been surprised by. So you joined late, you ran up like a rocket, not like a North Korean rocket, but you know, kind of a, a high performance rocket to the highest levels uh, of the Foreign Service. But what was interesting about you is that you were deeply innovative and uh, risk-taking without being insubordinate. And you, you managed to do things that were um, often somewhat different than what the hierarchy uh, wanted, but managed to get away with it and be successful. Is that something that you were aware of or is it just part of your personality? I wasn't much aware, but certainly I felt that, you know, when you try an initiative, uh, do something that is worthwhile doing, take a risk. And I always found maybe I had good bosses. I mean, you know, in you, in Hillary, they appreciated that and they encouraged me. And I think that's the case. Uh, and you're right. We are very hierarchical and we don't take enough risks. And But I do think the risk to reward is much higher than not taking a risk and just staying stagnant. And so, for example, whether it's a North Korea, Malaysia work I did, and the Burma work we, we did together, I didn't see much downside. And, uh, and I felt that, you know, uh, that my bosses were in fact enthusiastic about taking risk, having ideas, having projects. And, you know, a lot of them got turned down, I, you know, I might say. But I felt uh, uh, in general, uh, certainly my bosses were supportive. And I would mention that uh, at this point that, you know, I've worked for political appointees and career appointees. And uh, in general, I don't see that much difference. And if anything, political appointees probably encouraged more imaginative and more risk-based solutions. And so... I, I like the mix of having worked for two. I have 
to just inform our listeners of a wonderful uh, set of experiences I had with Joe when we were working together on the initial opening to Burma, to Myanmar, when the junta, the military dictatorship, was still in charge and they had Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest. We tried some initial diplomacy, which I was the, the key person. Uh, it did not go well. And, and I think my approach and my personality was not terribly conducive to the culture and the approach of the military. And it was Joe Yoon that, that had the courage to come up to me and said, look, Kurt, I, you know, you've got your skills, but they may not be appropriate for this circumstance. I'd be better to do this. And he was right. So the key person in the opening to uh, uh, Burma was not Secretary Clinton or or uh, Barack Obama or anyone else. It was it was Joe Yoon. He was the one who managed the initial diplomacy um, with the military and that convinced them to take the initial steps um, uh, to see where the, the country would go. Now, Joe, we've we've watched um, what's happened in Myanmar since. Um, the opening, and, and those were exciting, uh, uh, really hopeful days. We're in a different set of circumstances now with the tragedy of Rakhine State and the Rohingya. Where do you see the trajectory of Myanmar, of Burma heading? The Rohingya situation in particular has changed enormously. I think when we were doing Burma, Kurt, there was about 900,000 Rohingyas in Rakhine State. Right now, they've kicked out about 500,000, so half are gone. And I really doubt whether they can come back, all of them. Some portion may come back. So this has been a real ethnic cleansing. And, uh, and, and so I ask myself, is it the result of the opening we did? Um, is it, were we too early in lifting sanctions and so on? I don't think so. I don't think, uh, quite honestly, you know, I think the United States and U.S. government played a role in opening Myanmar or Burma, but I, 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 I don't think we were the cause. They wanted to do it. I think the real hero in all of this is, uh, is their president, Ten Saint. I think he's a real hero. He decided to take a risk and do it. And he set in this whole process in motion that Aung San Suu Kyi was able to take it and run with it. And, uh, and, and, and I'm glad the United States played such a role, but I don't think we should be you know, confused into thinking without us, it would not have happened. Uh, and so in my view, what is happening in Rohingya is sad and it is terrible. Um, and I don't quite know what the solution is. If you remember, Kurt, uh, towards, I think, I believe, last few months of Hillary and when you were there, we tried to come, because by then, September, they had another crisis, September of uh, 2012. And we tried to do something but again, it was so hard. And what we tried to do is have an international conference. Uh, and there was nobody who were ready in the region, in UN, outside to broker a conference. And certainly 
uh, you know, with the November elections coming up for us, you know, you and I felt that we were not ready either for such a big, big venture. So I sometimes look at that as a missed opportunity. Uh, we were too, I would say, preoccupied with our own political calendar. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, you and I could have been more aggressive in pushing for something big like that. But again, I'm not sure there was any capacity to take that on. Yeah, I remember that well, and I've had my own second thoughts and doubts and long nights given what's transpired. I agree that the opening makes sense, and th there is an internal calculus to what's going on inside of Myanmar that we can only affect on the sidelines. Uh, I do believe we have to take purposeful steps now going forward, and I am concerned. But overall, I think the decision to try to bring Myanmar out of its darkness into um, more engagement with the outside world, I think the logic is unassailable. So let me take you to another part of your career, Joe. You, you served as an ambassador. First, I want you to tell us what it's like to be an ambassador. You get the black car, you get the flag on the, on the hood ornament. But what's it like more generally? And particularly, you served in Malaysia, which is a country in profound transition. You developed a very close relationship with the leader. What's going to happen? First, what's it like to be ambassador? And what's going on in Malaysia? What we expect next? Malaysia is a great place to be ambassador to because, number one, it's 12 time zones away from Washington. So by the time you take action, it's too late for Washington to interfere or say anything. Yeah, here comes, this is the true <laughs> philosophy here. <laughs> That's right. For, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and so I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, a lot of people say it's a tough job. Well... Yes and no. I mean, you have a great supporting staff. In Malaysia alone, we had 100 Americans and two Malaysians in the embassy. That's a huge staff, and they want to do stuff. So it's very easy to delegate. And in DCM, I had, uh, I remember Edgar Kagan. He could do everything. So I said, Edgar, do it, you know. And and so it was a it was a great job. I enjoyed it. We had two visits by President Obama, and that is unusual. President Obama was the first American president to visit Malaysia since, believe it or not, Lyndon Johnson. You know? So both of them huge welcome. Of course, uh, Obama has a very deep connection with that part of world, having uh, grown up in Indonesia and uh, the mother having worked in both places, Indonesia and Malaysia. So it was something of a huge homecoming. And, uh, and, and I thought it really elevated our relationship. Yes, we were close to Najib and, uh, and, and, you know, to me, thinking back on it i just it's unfathomable that someone like najib who was educated in uk spoke english better than malaysian and was very worldly could be involved in corruption of such magnitude uh well over you know billion dollars just for himself and probably over four billion dollars 
in total. So he's in jail. And, uh, and now we have, the, for the first time since independence, uh, you know, an opposition led by 93-year-old former prime minister. So, you know, you and I got about 30 more years to go, Kurt, you know? So, so Joe, are politics heading into an unstable period in uh, Malaysia? I don't think so. Because I think between Mahathir and Anwar, they know the government, they know governing, and they know their people. And uh, I hope uh, this is a lesson, not just you know in Malaysia, but throughout Southeast Asia, that in the today's climate, where everything is so open, you cannot hide anything, and social media and so on, it is very, very hard to get away with something. You know, I'm also reminded from Korea how it is like for former president if they do something wrong. Two former presidents are currently in jail. So governance matters. Asians are very much waking up to the importance of governance. Mm. Yeah, there's a fine line here, though. If you go around Asia, there's a large number of countries in which leaders, uh, former leaders, are in prison. Uh, in Taiwan, you mentioned South Korea, Malaysia, also some former leaders in China. So, so on the one hand, there's accountability, but on the other hand, there is also the politicization of uh, leadership and what happens to people once they leave office. But I do agree the general trend towards uh, people demanding greater um, efficiency, less corruption is a positive thing. So we talked a little bit about what it's like being a diplomat. So you've witnessed over the last couple of years uh, what's happened at the State Department. So I'd, I'd be curious if you could give us sort of a state of the institution. Um, have the cuts hurt the morale? What I've been struck by is the number of people um, of enormous uh, quality and capability who've retired um, or some forced out. And, and it is striking to me if this was happening to our military, we would call it a national crisis. But I don't think our diplomats get the same respect. Is it a crisis? Is the institution capable of self-healing? If it's led more effectively, can we get over some of these hurdles? I do think it is a crisis uh, right now. You know, we have no confirmed undersecretaries in State Department. We don't have uh, P or political affairs undersecretary, economic affairs undersecretary, public diplomacy undersecretary, uh, arms control undersecretary. We don't have management undersecretary. None. Zero. We only have one confirmed regional assistant secretary, and that's for European region. Well, why is that? I do think it is on purpose. How can an administration not go filling these positions for now almost two years, one and a half years, 18 months? And I do think this is the 
a part of the very, very conservative agenda, and it's become politicized. I mean, you know, for me, I feel sad at loss of this capability, and I feel that we will pay a price in the future. Uh, we will pay a price in the future in terms of dearth of experience at that senior most level, and we will pay a price in terms of diplomacy, lack of initiatives that will come out, lack of negotiating capabilities, and and I do think uh, this will be a, this is a crisis. I mean, case in point is of course what we do on North Korea. Uh, right now, we don't have a special representative. We don't have EAP assistant secretary. We don't have undersecretary for political affairs. And, uh, and so it's, the patchwork is being done. And net result is the job doesn't get done. Another result is then whether it's a White House or someone else turns to another agency like CIA. And so we will pay, we have paid the big price and we will continue to pay a big price mm -hmm. for years to come, I believe. So, so Joe, at some point, we're probably going to have to contemplate an effort to completely rebuild the State Department because I do believe and I agree with you that the institution has been damaged. How do you do that? Do you, do you build from scratch? Do you go out and recruit mid-career people? Do you do all of the above? What's, what's your prescription for how to basically, you know, kind of rebuild an institution that I think is, is, is not as well appreciated in the formulation and execution of the American role in the world? My view is that at a level below, say, say uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary, uh, there is still a core there, so mid-level and junior level. Uh, so I think that should remain intact. What is going to be really important for the next Secretary of State or President is to make sure there are political appointees who are committed to building diplomacy. And this doesn't have to be just foreign service, but diplomacy. To me, kind of you know, a uh, strange development is they, uh, the current administration, do not even want to put their own folks in the position. And that I don't understand, except maybe the explanation is they find it easier uh, to have their own agenda. Somehow they think bureaucracy is in the way, you know. Yeah. And to me, I find that unfathomable. I think part of it is also the State Department sometimes gets um, identified as part of this some this deep state somehow that is, uh, you know, uh, undermining the agenda of the Trump administration. When I find most of the people that I've worked with are just straight up patriots prepared to do the nation's bidding and and deeply supportive and loyal to the people they work with. But let's save that for another time to talk further about this. Let me ask you, so so North Korea, just straight up, Joe. I, I know I know how to give the prevaricating answer. So is North Korea going to give up its nuclear weapons? They're not gonna give up 
all their nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that they're not going to do that. What I believe they are doing is they have decided that they will change their policies on economic and other opening. I think Kim Jong-un has made that clear. And so that has worked. Uh, sanctions implementation is way down. I cannot imagine there being additional sanctions. And, and, and South Koreans are keen to do business there. Yeah. But they're not going to trade that for uh, nuclear weapons. And for now, they don't see why they need to trade yeah. it. They can have both. So, Joe, uh, I agree with that. But do you think it's starting to dawn on Secretary Pompeo the enormous hole that President Trump has dug for him? He's basically said the problem's over and I've solved it and this is a great, you know, line, line me up for a Nobel Prize green jacket and... Now, of course, as Pompeo sits down to talk with the North Koreans, we're not even at stage one. We can't even agree on some very basic concepts. Does he appreciate that? Does he understand it? I think he understands it, and I think his frustration is obvious to everyone to see. Uh, he's completely frustrated, and he's been expressing that quietly himself. Uh, the, frustrated at the president because you can't be frustrated with the president, obviously. Frustrated at at North Korea or frustrated at, you know, the marching orders. What? All of the above. Yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> I think he's very frustrated. As are you know, people who work on this issue. Again, you know, not to beat this to you know till death, but this is what happens when you have process backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So process is important. So Joe, as you, as you look forward um, uh, to uh, the next stage in your career, what are some of the things that you want to accomplish going forward? You know, Kurt, uh, in having worked on Korean issues, uh, I do want to make sure that, uh, that from outside in, at least... We, we, you know, we remind people, remind Congress, remind administration, remind everyone there is a diplomatic solution. Uh, that is certainly what I want to do. Uh, and, uh, and, and in my role as whether, you know, I'm talking to uh, CNN, corporates, or any, anything else, I want to make sure that really there is no war option that is military option is way out and i want to kind of you know walk this path with people saying it's never all or nothing there is always something that both sides can agree good words to live by and joe the time has just passed much too quickly. I've really enjoyed this conversation and know our listeners will too. We're thrilled to have you with us on a day-to-day -day basis at the Asia Group. Your expertise and insight are both so valuable, as is your friendship. And to our subscribers, thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.